If you're joining us for the first time today, or maybe it's the first time in a while, you are joining us right at the beginning of this series entitled Spiritual Habits. And just in case you happen to be someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're someone who hasn't had a lot of experience with faith in Jesus, this phrase, spiritual habits, just seems a little bit, mm, I don't know, weird to you or just different. Uh, I would like to just real, before we go any further today, just define what we mean when we who are Clarity Church say spiritual habits. Spiritual habits are this. Spiritual habits are the rhythms of living that God uses to increasingly transform and conform a person's life to look like Jesus. That's basically what it is. It's the rhythms of living. It's the patterns of our lives that we practice intentionally, as we'll learn, uh, that actually help us look more and more like Jesus. And so this series is all about exploring how someone who had described themselves as someone who has submitted their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is a series all about how that person aligns the actions of their lives in such a way that they accomplish God's mission for their lives. Now, uh, we talked a lot last week all about how spiritual habits work and why that is actually helpful in helping the believer build rhythms for living life on mission. And today we're going to start talking about one of, uh, one of these spiritual habits. Today we're going to be talking about the habit, obviously, of worship. Now, uh, depending on your religious background, the concept of worship carries with it many different ideas, right? How many of you uh, grew up maybe Catholic? Catholic background. So how many of you grew up maybe with like a Lutheran background? How many of you grew up with maybe like an Episcopalian or something like that background? How about Baptists? How about a Pentecostal background? Obviously, see? Woo! Woo! Pentecostal background! Woo! Glory to God! Okay, um, so calm down. I'm Baptist now. Um, obviously, the, the idea of worship carries a lot of different things uh, about it. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, there was this thing called worship wars. And it was a huge thing. It was this big thing. And, and basically, it was be people arguing about how their personal preference for expressing worship to God uh, was basically more biblical than others. And, and it was just, it was, uh, quite frankly, I don't even want to talk about it to give it credence because it was just crazy. I like how one uh, pastor and theologian put the definition of worship, which is going to be our working definition for today, uh, simply because it's really good. So I, I don't feel like I'm going to have to try to make something up new. But it's this, uh, from, from Tim Keller, he actually tweeted this. It says this, Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. It says, Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire, say entire, entire being, your entire being. And in the same message about worship, this actually came from a message that uh, Tim Keller uh, gave on worship. Uh, Tim Keller draws attention to one of the quintessential passages of Scripture regarding this subject of worship. And that's where we're going to spend a little bit of our time today as we talk about what worship is. And then we uh, go on to talk about like, how to actually put this into a, uh, a rhythm of our lives so that we're actually finding ourselves practicing the spiritual habit of worship. And so uh, Psalm 95, what you need to know is that it is a wonderful psalm regarding the instruction of worship, but it does more than just tell us to just worship. It instructs us to worship with our whole being, our mind, will, and emotions. And so this is why, first and foremost, worship, worship is, is something that we are called to do with our emotions. 
with our emotions. Psalm 95, 1 through 2 says this. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us what? Shout. What? Joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with what? Thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. And so here are these examples of of praising joyfully with thanksgiving. It looks a lot like the Pentecostal. What, what, right? Emotion, giving it to God. I mean, oh my goodness. How can you not sing that reckless love? Oh, the reckless love. Oh my goodness. When I think about like what God did for me while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Oh man, if you're a believer in Christ and you hear those words and you sing and you mouth those words that God has reckless love for me, something inside you and in, in, in the spirit inside you just goes, oh my goodness, thank you God so much. And if that was you, you were worshiping. But worship is not just emotion. Worship is also about our will. We are called to worship God with our will. If you look at verse 6, later on in that same passage, it says, Come, let us worship, and what? Bow down. Bow down. Let us what? Kneel before the Lord our Maker. Here, as in other places uh, in Scripture, uh, one I'm thinking of is Hebrews chapter 13, uh, you know, that bringing a sacrifice of praise. There's many, many, many passages of Scripture that talk about this idea that worship, worship in many ways requires our submission. It requires choosing even though you don't feel like sometimes. It requires purposeful displays of humility, not just within our hearts, but literally... Now, some of you, you're like, Phil, if I get down on my knees, I'll be there the whole service. I get it. But when was the last time you purposely put your body in a position in worship to God simply because that's what God requires of you? We're also called to worship the Lord with not only just our emotions and our will, but we're also called to worship the Lord with our reason and our thinking, with reason and thinking. If you look at the end of verse 7, the psalmist calls the worshiper to listen or to consider, or another word is to reason. And Jesus would make a similar statement to a woman he was in conversation with about worship when he said this in John 4, 23 to 24. He said, but the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in what? Truth. So worship is, yes, it's emotion-filled. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a display of your will to, to be humble before the Lord. But it's also something that requires your mind and your brain. Okay, that wasn't funny, sorry. That was from a line in a movie. So it's the same thing, get it? Your mind, anyways. Um, it's okay, you can laugh. My dad jokes, it makes me feel a lot better. And so we are to be people who use our reason. Again, throughout the scripture, worship as an act that engages a person's, what? Entire being. And if your worship is emotional, but does not change the patterns of your life, then your worship really isn't worship. I mean, just say that again. If you find yourselves in your worship deeply tied emotionally to the greatness of who God is, but at the end of the day, it actually doesn't change your everyday rhythms, then it is not worship at all. 
It may be a cultural experience. It may be an emotional experience. Maybe it may be an aesthetic appearance because uh, experience because the lights are low and the music is just right, and you know, uh, and the course goes right up to the bridge. Or, or maybe it's maybe it's about uh, you know your home. Maybe your home. Maybe you're someone who likes to worship at home, and you have your Bose stereo on at just the right volume, and and you know, Hillsong is just on that right song, <laughs> and the kids are all at school, and so yes, hallelujah. It may be all that, but if it doesn't change your everyday rhythms, then it really isn't worship at all. On the other side, if your worship appears to be humble or, or expressive, but you don't ever find yourself with a passion to actually ascribe worship to the Lord for all that he has done, then you are in danger of actually not really, really Worshiping. As one pastor and author put it bluntly, he said, where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. So, okay, I was all pretty heavy. If worship requires engaging our whole being, what is it that engages our whole being? What is it? Right, because then that's the big question. How can we even get to the point where we respond in worship to God with our emotions, our will, and our reason. Well, it actually is found within the spaces of the verses we read in Psalm 95. We respond to our emotion, with our emotions and our will and our reason when we rightly understand God's worth. When we rightly understand God's worth. Look at verse 3 to 5. Remember we read verse 2 of Psalm 95. It said this, For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The key phrase there is for why do what we do? Why, why do we sing before the Lord, shout joyfully? Why do we come with thanksgiving? The word there is for. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He holds in his hands the depths of the earth and the mightiest mountains. The sea belongs to him for he made it. His hands form the dry land too. Verse 7, why do, we, why do we kneel before the Lord? Why do we bow down before him? Because, verse 7 says, for he is our God. We are the people he watches over, the flock under his care. You know, it's really, really hard to bow down and humble yourself before something that you don't understand. And so it's understanding God's worth that actually helps you worship. I don't know how many of you have ever watched an episode of the Antique Roadshow. How many of you ever watched that on PBS? Antique Roadshow. Um, or, you know, there's uh, shows like Pawn Star now. But the best part of these kind of shows, like these and other ones, isn't watching people that have found, uh, you know, something that they think is valuable and now they want to reaffirm that it's valuable. Uh, in fact, it, it's kind of fun to see people think they have something valuable and see it's like a fake. I know that's kind of mean, but like part of me is like, ha you paid $400 for that, and it's a piece of junk. Um, and so I don't know, there's, there's something in my depravity that, that comes out in those moments, but the best part, the best part of watching these shows isn't actually when that happens. The best part is when you watch someone who, unbeknownst to themselves, had been carrying something immensely 
valuable for many, many years and are now being for the first time told how precious and how valuable this item really is. And, and it's, it's just wonderful watching the reaction as they're told they have a unique and wonderful treasure. In fact, I, I'll, I'll do you one better. If you've never watched one, here's one of the classic episodes from the show. Take a look at it. Before I tell you what I know about this uh, weaving here, you've got a little bit of history. It sounds uh, quite interesting. First, tell me what you know about it. Well, I don't know an awful lot about it, except that uh, it was given by Kit Carson, uh, who I'm sure everybody knows uh, in his history, given to the foster father of my grandmother. And do you know who made this weaving? Do you know what kind of blanket it is? Uh, it's a, probably a Navajo, but uh, that's about all I know. So you haven't had anybody look at it? Nobody's or? ever looked at it that I'm aware of. Well, Ted, did you notice when you showed this to me that I kind of stopped breathing a little bit? Yeah, you did. <laughs> I'm you still having me, a little bit of trouble breathing here, Ted. It took uh, me by surprise because I, you know, didn't think much about it. These were made in about 1840 to 1860, and it's called a ute first a, phase. A ute? A ute first phase wearing blanket. A ute chief's first wearing phase blanket. wearing blanket. But it's Navajo made. They were made for ute chiefs and they were very, very valuable at the time. This is sort of, this is Navajo weaving in its purest form. Not only that, the condition of this is unbelievable. This is almost like silk. It's made from hand-woven wool, yeah. but it's so finely done, it's like silk. Wow. It would repel water. And this here is dyed with indigo dyes. It was a very valuable dye at the time. And what's really interesting is right here, we have an old repair that was probably done in the 1860s and it's wow. done with rivaled bayetta, which is in itself a very important thing in Navajo, uh, Navajo weaving. So uh, all involved, it's an extraordinary piece of art. It's extremely rare. It is the most important thing that's come into the roadshow that I've seen. Um, do you have a sense at all of what you're looking at here in terms of value? I haven't a clue. Are, uh, are you a wealthy man, Ted? No. Well, sir, um, I'm, I'm still a little nervous here, I have to tell you. Uh, on a really bad day, this textile would be worth $350,000. On a good day, it's about a half a million dollars. Oh, my God. You had no I, idea. I had no idea. I was just laying on the back of a chair. Well, sir, you have a national treasure. Wow. A national treasure. Gee. When you walked in with this, I just about died. Congratulations. Gee. Congratulations. I can't believe this. If, if we could do research on this and we could prove with a, without a reasonable doubt that Kit Carson did actually own this, um, the value would increase again, hmm. maybe 20%. Wow. Can't believe it. My grandmother, you know, were poor farmers. They didn't, uh, she had, uh, her, her foster father had started some gold mills and and you know, discovered gold and everything, but there was no wealth, no wealth in the family at all. Whoa. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Gee. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed, I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> so no one really knew what this blanket was worth, sat in the family for years which is why it was just sitting on the back of a chair, you know, 
Um, and actually, uh, I, I was so intrigued by this video, I did some research on the guy. It's, it's, he, uh, I think he ended up selling it, uh, and, and the current appraised value is like over a million dollars right now. Um, but just because no one knew how much it, worth, it was worth, it didn't change the reality of how unique in its beauty it was. Just because no one understood its worth didn't change the fact that it was priceless, really, in value. <laughs> and the appraiser, <laughs> the appraiser could self-admittedly barely breathe when he saw the thing. Right? He's like, I- I'm just I'm struggling to breathe right now. The appraiser could barely breathe because why? He knew exactly what he was looking at. And he knew that he would probably never again with his hands be able to touch this thing that was uniquely made. It was priceless among worth. And from what he's seen in the whole antique roadshow, he said, I've never seen anything like this, right? Remember he said that. And then, I, I, I don't know about you, but I just, I, I almost get moved with emotion watching the guy <laughs> process the information of what it was he actually had. When the owner came to understand what he had in his possession, the owner was also moved, moved to tears. Someone I hear is like, oh my goodness, he's crying. And I think... He was moved to tears simply because he had realized he wasn't living in accordance to the value of what he had. I can imagine the emotions running through his mind like, oh my goodness, that one time I let the dog just like, kind of jump on it or we threw it on the, on the, you know, man, I really shouldn't have taken it to my granddaughter's soccer game or, you know, like, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, well, here's what I know. In that moment, he realized that his life had been living at odds in relationship to the reality of what that blanket was worth. His ascribed value to that blanket was not in line with the value of the actual blanket. And if you Google this guy, you can, you'll know that not only just emotionally, but in reality, his life changed forever. His life changed forever. And to me, this really is the wonderful, a wonderful illustration of what the spiritual habit of worship at its core is. Because worship begins with the discovery of who God is and what he has done. It's understanding his worth. Do you know how much God is worth? When was the last time you stopped to recognize who God is and all he has done for you? And if you're not a follower of Christ, I'm not saying that you have to answer this question. But listen, if you are someone who believes with all your heart and mind that Jesus Christ not only was sent to earth to live a sinless life, but to die the kind of death we should have died and live the kind of life we could never live to be buried and raised from the dead, and that by faith and belief in him, we could actually 
in our lives accomplish the mission that God started through Jesus Christ through our lives, which is rescuing, restoring, and redeeming the world for his glory and for his sake. If you believe that, if you are a follower of Jesus, then let me ask you a question. This is just a good question for yourself to, to ask. When was the last time you just stopped to recognize who God is and all that he has done for you? If you haven't done it recently, I wonder if you have actually worshipped recently. Recent statistics say that approximately 80% of Americans believe there is a God or some higher power or spiritual force. Uh, of that percent, 56% believe in a God as defined by the scriptures. And to me, that I'm surprised. Look at this research. Uh, because if you look at the current state of our culture <laughs> and what is being given attention and what is celebrated, I don't think anyone would feel like one-third of the people they meet in their everyday lives are people who actually worship God with their entire being. And, and I'm not being like, maybe this is me being super judgy, but like sometimes I wonder if even one-third of us here <laughs> actually worship God with all of our being. Sometimes I wonder if I worship God with all my being. When I look into what the scriptures define for me is worship, sometimes I have to be honest with myself and be like, ah, I haven't been ascribing worship to God with my whole being. And why, why is it that we doubt that people are worshiping God in the way that he deserves. I think according to the data, most people believe in a God, but they have God in a way. The man who owned a blanket viewed his blanket before it was appraised. Most people are just simply unaware of the value of it. So let me ask again, how much, this is a question just for you to ponder, ponder, this is something for you to think about, how much is God worth? You can literally ask yourself that question, like how much, how much is he worth? Going back to the origins of the word, Worship, it comes from the original phrase, worth-ship, which basically means giving God all that he's worth. And this question, how much is God worth, isn't necessarily a question about what you think God is worth. This is really a question about the reality of God's worth. This is also not a question about what you want God to be, right? Because that... That is something that a lot of times people worship. They worship the God they want God to be. And it's, I think it's really important to draw a line and say, that's not the definition of God's worth, what you feel God is worth or what you feel like God should be. In fact, uh, in his book, For All God's Truth, uh, True Worship for the Calling of the Church, author and theologian writes, uh, N.T. Wright writes this, he said, Left to myself, the God I want is a God who will give me what I want. He, or more likely it, will be a projection of my desires. At the grosser level, this will lead me 
to one of the more obvious pagan gods or goddesses who offer their devotees money or sex or power. All idols start out life as the god somebody wanted. At the more sophisticated level, the God I want will be a God who lives up to my intellectual expectations, a God of whom I can approve rationally, judiciously, and after due consideration and weighing upon of theological probabilities, I want this God because he or it will underwrite my intellectual arrogance. He will boost my sense of being a refined, modern thinker. The net result is that I become God. And this God I've made becomes my puppet. Nobody falls down on their face before the God they wanted. Nobody trembles at the word of a homemade God. Nobody goes out with fire in their belly to heal the sick, to clothe the naked, to teach the ignorant, to feed the hungry because of the God they wanted. They are more likely to stay at home with their feet up. Advent, Christmas, Lent, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. These events function as a sense of well-aimed hammer blows which knock at the clay jars of the gods we want, the gods who reinforce our own pride or prejudice until they fall away and reveal instead a very different God, a dangerous God, a subversive God, a God who comes to us like a blind beggar with wounds in his hand, a God who comes to us in wind and fire and bread and wine and flesh and blood, a God who says to us, you did not choose me, I chose you. Just this past week, uh, I was having lunch with my friend Mark. He found out it was my birthday recently, and he's like, hey, bro, let's go have some lunch, man. And uh, that's my best Mark impression, sorry. It was terrible. And uh, I've enjoyed friendship with Mark over the years. I don't know, where are you at, Mark? There you are right there. Well, Mark and I, uh, he's one of those friends that I have that we, we can like go right straight to like spiritual conversation really quickly. I don't know if you have friends like that in your life. You should have one. Everyone should have one. It was really great. We started talking about this idea of worship because I was obviously studying for, for today's message. And um, Mark, I, I just love how God uses Mark. Mark, he self-proclaimed, uh, and I don't mean this to insult you. You've said this. He's a self-proclaimed idiot. Like, I don't know much. Yeah, see? See? There you go. <clears throat> but what's, what's awesome, uh, and we joke about this, is when you got nothing, God has a lot of room to work. <laughs> and God, uh, God, I didn't tell you this, but thank you. What you said stuck with me. In fact, I'm going to tell people something, things that you said that just stuck with me. And I'd just like to share with you uh, some of this conversation. Um, one of the things that Mark said, he goes, you know, Phil, when I think about worship, you know, he, and he never just tells me, I love his humility on that. He says, you know, worship is kind of a, it's a disposition that God, he might not have used the word disposition. I'm just, I have an obsession with big words. So uh, he might've said something simpler, but, but this is what I wrote. So I'm going to read it. Worship is a disposition that God is greater and that we're his servants. That, that it's, it's, he's great. And, and it's just like disposition that like, 
<laughs> look at us. <laughs> oh, look at God. Look at God. Something he also said, worship is an internal thing. As much as it is an external thing, it's, it's a bending of the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, not only outwardly, but it's that inward saying, God, you are God. And then the most powerful thing he said, the cap off our time together, he's like, you know, when I think about worship, it's not, you know, God isn't the one who really benefits in worship. You know, we make it all about him and I just don't think God up there is going, yo, that's me. <laughs> Reckless love, God, right here. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> How you doing? I, um, he said, I, you know, I, I actually think God wants us to worship for our benefit. Because God wants worshipers not because he's narcissistic, but because he knows the indescribable joy and peace people find in affirming their identity in Christ. That was, that was great. And you're probably like, I said that? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. I was writing it down. That's how I had my phone <laughs> while you're talking. Good stuff. So I have a few minutes with you and just want to ask a couple questions and give a suggestion. Maybe, actually, just one question, maybe some suggestion. What are you going to do to build the spiritual habit of worship? I, <clears throat> there are many ways over the years. I, before, I was a pastor. I was uh, like a, a youth pastor. And then even before that, I was in worship. And so I've had a lot of opportunities to talk about worship over the years in many different ways. In many different, there's many ways you can cover this subject. And so there's some aspects of it I'm not actually covering. But at the end of the day, uh, let's just assume that what we know about the Scriptures is true, that believers in Christ are people who live a life of worship, who worship God not just only in the gathering of the saints, but every day of their lives they're living. Because if worship is this idea of ascribing ultimate worth with your entire being, why would you, as someone who says they submitted their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, not live your everyday rhythms as unto God with your whole being? Which is what? Worship. Why wouldn't you? If we assume that, then the question is this, what are you going to do to build the spiritual habit of worship? Because if we are honest with ourselves, we battle to worship the God we want instead of the God who, if you actually knew this, desperately wants you. I remember one, uh, one of the commentaries I read made this really brash statement. At first I was like, no, that's not right. But then I listened a little bit more and you know, paid attention to the many letters behind his name. And I was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe you're right. Okay. But he said, you know, you look all through the scriptures. God, God doesn't seek anything from us except our worship. He doesn't seek our service. Uh, that's just called obedience. He, he says, do this. But when you look at the scriptures, God is seeking for those who would worship him. That's the one thing God seeks 
for worshipers. And I don't know where you are in your journey of faith, but here are maybe some suggestions for you if you would want to actually build the spiritual habit of worship in your life. First one's super easy, super simple. It's the answer that you would think. Engage with worship in these kind of worship gatherings or services, whatever you want to call them. And maybe engage in some of the resources that we try to give to help our worship time engage your entire being. I don't know if you knew this, but inside of each of your programs, we've been doing this for years. Some of you don't even know this. Um, We have this thing called the Music Lyric Guide. (laughs) And we've been putting this in our programs for years because we wanted someone, whether you're, you know, someone who doesn't believe everything you've heard about Jesus in the Bible, or you're someone who is a follower of Christ, but maybe just wants to understand how worse, how the words we're singing and the worship we're using expresses a, a scripture-based uh, you know, ascribing of, of worship to who God is. That's what it's there for. And that's, that's why someone took the time to, to write and explain how these songs we're singing actually gives worship to God scripturally. And so for some of you, maybe it's just starting to put yourself in a position once a week. Like we have to start somewhere, okay? I know you extremists out there, worship is more than just once a week. I don't know, calm down, calm down. Calm down. Let's let, let's let, let's let people start somewhere. <laughs> and listen, you're free to start there. But if you've been doing that for a couple years, I want to maybe entreat you, it's time to go to the next level. Maybe you need to regularly and intentionally pause to think about who God is and all he has done and respond accordingly. Maybe for you, the next step is to go, yeah, I've been, I've been attending church since I was a kid. But if I'm honest with myself, there absolutely is no time in my week where I pause and I stop and I think about what the scriptures tell me, who God is and what he has done, and then I respond accordingly. In fact, I'll be honest, when I pause, I take naps. That's just what I do. Or I Facebook or I Instagram. Okay, I'm messing with some of you now. Listen, if you're struggling with an appropriate way to respond to the truth of who God is and all he has done for you, maybe some of you should actually do what your mother taught you to do when someone does something nice to you, right? When someone does something nice to you, what does your mom say? Say what? Say, Jimmy, Jimmy, look, look, look her in the face. Thank you. No, look him in the eyes and say what? Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Right? No. Right? And then what do you get back over there? Smile. Thank you. Right? Maybe. I, I get it. Uh, this idea of responding appropriately to who God is and what He's done. I, I would want to maybe encourage you. If this isn't a habit for you, it's going to be awkward. Just want to let you know. You're stopping in the middle of the day and you're like, okay, Jesus Christ died for my sins. He forgive me while I was a still sinner. Christ died for us. Himself took my infirmities, bare my sicknesses, you know, and, and, and by his stripes I am healed. And, and, and as, as 
as you think about these scriptural truths about who God is and what he has done, now to him who is able to accomplish abundantly more than I am able to comprehend or ask, now to him, this is the God I serve, no height nor death, nor, you know, can separate me from the love of God was in Jesus Christ the Lord, for God's love the Lord. When you think about it, all of a sudden, and you're like, huh, I don't know what to do. Why don't you just say thanks? Just go and say, I don't know what to say, God. Thank you. Start there. And see what God does. Because if you are a follower of Christ, his spirit is living in you. And I believe with all my heart, as you put into order the rhythms of worship, of ascribing ultimate worth to God with your whole being, God's spirit inside of you will finally be stirred. Remember the illustration we used last week about the chocolate? If you weren't there, got to look at the podcast. But all of a sudden, that bland, regular skim milk all of a sudden becomes super sweet, an ultra non-healthy chocolate milk as you begin stirring your life. And I don't know if you knew this, but the entire story of the Bible is that God knows you intimately. Did you know that? And he loves you immeasurably. He knows everything about you and he loves you anyways. <laughs> that should get an amen from everybody. He loves you anyways, because I know me. I don't love me anyways. No, I'm teasing. And this is not the kind of love that's driven by emotion, right? But it's an all-consuming, driving, sacrificial love that has never ended and never will end and will never stop, and he will never stop pursuing you. This is what we're saying about this. 1 John 4, 9-10 tells us this, For God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have what? Eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. How do we know this? He sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Maybe some of you need to remind yourself, this is who God is. And you need to figure out, some of you, you've got to just put it on your calendar. That seems really not spirit-led and really... You know what? You've got to start somewhere. You're not going to be able to interrupt the everyday rhythms of your life, which by the most, for the most part are incredibly selfish and self-purporting, unless you plan so I'm not going to give you a, a schedule. You just need to do your adults. Put on your big girl, big boy pants and just figure this out. Just do it. Just do it. And maybe, maybe for some of you, the journey towards building the spiritual habit of worship needs to start at a more basic level. Maybe I, I went too far. I started at this idea of you know, come to gatherings and or where the body of Christ worships together so you can not only participate with others, but even begin to watch. And by the way, the ultimate power of worshiping together is you help each other by modeling what it looks like to worship Christ. You help each other grow into spiritual maturity. That's why we also said last week, spiritual habits are both personal and interpersonal disciplines, okay? But for some of you, maybe even before going to a gathering and regularly making worship part of your life at least once a week or 
stopping throughout the week and thinking about who God is. Maybe, maybe for you, in order for you to build a rhythm of worship in your life, you actually need to learn what the Bible has to say about who God is and what he's done. Like, maybe you, you just need to start there. Because if you want to understand ultimate worth, the ultimate worth that God is worth, you have to go to the best appraiser of who God is in the world. And that's the scriptures. The scriptures tell us who God is and what he's done. And so, that's my segue for next week. I'd love for you to join us as next week we talk about the spiritual habit of learning the scriptures. But in the meantime, I hope you would begin the habit of ascribing ultimate value to God for all he is and all he has done with all that you are.